All right. Let's see. No, James does not come after Exodus, at least not directly, but yeah. She's paying attention. At least somebody's paying attention around here. I mean, the Lord knows I'm not, so as long as you know what's going on. All right. This is always fun. We get to start a new book. It's been a while. Now, how many of you are looking at that screen and freaking out right now? <laughs> who, who wants to say it? Who wants to pick at me? What's, our, what's one of our rules? Well, that's always in effect, but I'm talking about Bible reading rules. Never, ever, ever read one Bible verse. That's not a typo. <laughs> and I am not going to the repentance corner either. The reason why we are doing this is because, one, actually, the way James structures itself, um, verse 2 almost begins a section. The other reason is because when you begin a new book, we have to do so. We have to get what's known as the prolegomena out of the way, the things before the things. In other words, if you don't have one and you are looking to do some uh, extra Bible study, I recommend investing in a decent study Bible. If for no other reason, you will get the background information before you dive into the books. And that is more important than people give credit to. Can you understand scripture without it? Yes. Can you make sense of your Bible without the historical backgrounds? Yes. But if you want to get a complete and full picture, if you want to dive in deeply and eliminate some of the potholes that you may fall into, understanding some of the historical background of your books is very, very important. James 1.1 gives us an excuse to dive into that before we get into the meat of the book and then dive, go forward. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to do. We want to see what's a James. <laughs> because believe it or not, that matters. Who's writing this matters. Who is James writing to? Because there's a little bit of controversy about that. Why does that matter? Who he's writing to is important. And once we've established all of that, then we can actually apply some understanding and some truth. Now, the main reason we want to take the time to go slowly on this from the very beginning, I know if you're air quotes, you know, church people, and I don't mean that like in a negative connotation, but if you've grown up in church or spent any of your time, some of the questions I'm going to ask today, you probably know the answers to. Do you know why? Because what am I always, always harping on? I don't care what you do, I care why you do it. Because if you get your why you're doing things in life correct, your what's will work themselves out every single time. The other reason is the History Channel still exists. I'm going to pick on them until they get one of those Bible specials they do right, which means I'm going to pick on them as long as I'm here because I don't think they're ever getting one right. <laughs> well, it doesn't. And, but that's part of this because what in the world in general is set up to bring you closer to God from their perspective? And the answer is absolutely nothing. So when they do their Easter and Christmas specials about the real historical Jesus, rest assured that 45 minutes of that hour-long special are going to be things that if you really know your Bible, you're going to roll your eyes at. And the other 15 minutes are going to be things that you don't really sure about, and they start questioning and wondering. So anytime we get an opportunity to answer the details, I want to do that simply because I expect you to remember everything that flows forth from my mouth, right? No, but I want you to know that even if you don't know what the answer is, you know that there is an answer 
and you have a fighting chance of finding it or finding someone who knows it. That just comes from repeat and knowledge and understanding. So, with all of that said, who wants to dive into a new book? I do, I do, I do. <laughs> all right. Verse 1. And if you'll notice in your bulletin, I put all the, I put all the cross-reference stuff in your bulletin. The way the outline is laid out today is the way that we would lay this out kind of in a, uh, in a Bible class. So verse 1a, verse 1b, verse 1c, and that's how we're going to dive into it. So verse 1-1, we'll just dive straight in. James. All right, stop. Because believe it or not, we have to have some questions. Who's James? See, are you sure? Ah, see, this is the stuff we got to cover. This is the important information. There are four prominent Jameses of the New Testament. There are four. James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less. James, the father of Judas, who is not Iscariot. Remember, amongst the disciples, there were two Judases. James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John. And James, the half-brother of Jesus. All right, you ready? James, the son of Alphaeus, has no evidence or testimony as author. He gone. All right. James, the father of Judas, not Iscariot, has no evidence or testimony as author. He gone. And when I say that, I mean no one in church history outside of like some weirdo on a mountaintop by himself who thinks butterflies are talking to him thinks that those Jameses are the author of this epistle. All right. And the reason I'm going to phrase it like that is because the minute I say that no one has ever thought that James the Less was the author, you're going to find like some obscure lunatic from the 4th century who lived in a monastery and ate cockroaches for lunch. You'll be like, oh, look, look, he thought it. So, hmm. Which, by the way, I say that jokingly. Do you guys remember, um, this is why I pick on the History Channel stuff. Do you remember a few years ago when they were all freaked out about the Gospel of Judas? We found, it's the gospel, look, look, Jesus had a wife, and everything you know about the New Testament is a lie. Do you know that when they made that Bible, that was like 2014, 2015, when they made that documentary, we had known about the gospel of Judas academically since the 1950s? It wasn't new. It was just new to you on television. They'd written books on this. It was part of the Gnostic collection of, you know, Gospel of Thomas and the, uh, the apocryphal works of Peter. And all. We'd known about it at that point for almost 70 years. But you put a shiny new bow on it, you put the big bold letters, and you talk really loud, and you get the, the Dirty Jobs voiceover guy to talk to you, and you're like, oh, look. And they made it sound like they pulled it out of the sand in Egypt 20 minutes ago. It had been around forever. This is why I joke about we'll find some monk in the 4th century who spoke these things, because this is how seeds of doubt are sown. Always remember, how many new things are there under the sun? So what's the, ch- what's the game? What's the playbook from the enemy? Did God really say? In other words, we're going to take the truth, we're going to turn it about 30 degrees, and then we're going to hand it to you like it's something brand new that you've never seen before. The way you counter that is by understanding what is true, what is good, what is right, and doing some of the goofy hard work that we're doing today. So James, the son of Alphaeus, is out. James, the father of Judas, is out. James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, is actually a decent candidate. He was one of the apostles from the very beginning. If you go back to Matthew 4, going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. So one of the first apostles... But, well, not but yet. And if you were going to connect historically, 
James, the brother of John, would be a good place to start, right? I mean, John's kind of prolific in the New Testament, isn't he? He wrote one gospel, three epistles, and an apocalypse not in a pear tree. So he wrote quite a few books, but there's a problem for James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee. Uh, Acts 12. About that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. That was about 44 AD. I'm going to be one of the more conservative dating people when it comes to the book of James. James is written around 48 or 49 AD. Now, I don't know many things in life, but I know 44 comes before 48. And if you're dead in 44, you don't write books in 48. So unfortunately, literally and figuratively, James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee, is gone as well. That leaves us with one prominent James in the New Testament. Mark 6. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. James, the brother of Jesus, mentioned from the very beginning. Now, if you would like some evidence that people will use that's actually beyond just, oh yeah, well, I said it, so it must be true. If you would like to do the grammatical work, you can compare the work in the writing in the style of speech of the book of James, and you can, com- you can compare it to Acts 15, where Luke has recorded the speech that James gives at the Jerusalem Council. And what you will find is that they compare very well. The James of Acts 15 sounds like the James of the book of James. So even though Luke wrote Acts 15, he's writing a speech and he's recording it accurately. We have similar language, similar uh, theology, and similar uh, forms of speech. As far as the church is concerned, um, there's almost no one who doesn't think that this James brother of Jesus is the author of James the Epistle. And while this is one of the last books accepted into the official quote-unquote canon of the church, the listing of the New Testament, it is quoted universally by the early church fathers in the first and second century as coming from James, brother of Jesus. So when you go into history, what's another one of our rules? If you're the first person in 2,000 years to come up with something, what are you? You're wrong. Like, I have discovered... No one before me has seen or understood this, but I have discovered that this is in the Bible. No one else in 2,000 years, people who spent 60, 70, 80 years of their lives locked up in monasteries, reading the Bible, studying it, doing nothing else, skipping meals, they missed it. Faithful pastors, people with PhDs, they all missed it, but some loon and a commune in Kansas figured it out, right? Yeah, no. You're the first person in 2,000 years to come up with something out of the Bible. You're wrong. If you're the first person to go against 2,000 years of of recorded Bible understanding, you're also wrong. It's one of the reasons why the book of James is ultimately included is because it comes from an apostolic source. Always remember this. The entirety of your New Testament comes from the apostles. This is the foundation of the teachings of Christ. So, Matthew apostle. Mark, not an apostle, but traveling companion of both Paul and then later on Peter and then Paul again. So the the gospel of Mark is basically Peter's gospel. It's Peter's teaching in and around Rome. Um, Yeah, I said Rome. I I said the name right. I almost said Jerusalem and I'm going to mess myself up. Luke, not an apostle, traveling companion of Paul, tells you in the first four verses of his gospel that he's doing what? 
that he's trying to assemble the testimony, uh, assemble the evidence so that he can present to you an orderly account of what has happened. So he uses the opportunities of his traveling with Paul to have access to James, to Peter. This is why the interactions of Mary with Jesus getting lost when he's 12 is only found in Luke's gospel. Is because as you run across these people in your travels, you can interview them and actually get information to include because it's part of the history. John, an apostle... Um, Acts, written by Luke, traveling companion of Paul. We just covered that with his gospel. Uh, So traveling companion of apostle. All of Paul's letters, Paul is an apostle. Uh, First and second Peter, written by Peter, who is an apostle. First, second, third John in Revelation, written by John, who is an apostle. Hebrews, you ready? Written by Luke, sermon of Paul. Paul is an apostle, which is why historically it's been considered uh, an extra letter of Paul's, but it's, it's a sermon given by, read a Hebrews and you'll notice it, read Hebrews out loud and it will make so much sense to you. And that's also, the reason why I say it's a sermon is because um, Paul is not directly quoting, but there's number, there are a number of places in the book of Hebrews where it says, and somewhere it says, and then he quotes something from the Old Testament. And if you have a reference Bible, it'll give you the reference. You're like, well, why didn't Paul know that? Well, because he was speaking without his Old Testament in front of him. And he's like, I know it says it somewhere. And basically he gave you one of those, read your Old Testament, it'll do you good things. So somewhere it says, and then he quotes it. Um, who does that leave? Jude, half-brother of Jesus, uh, one of the leaders and evangelists of the Jerusalem church, and James, half-brother of Jesus, pillar of the church. And we're going to cover more of that in just a second. So before we cover that, though, what would be the problem with James's testimony as an apostle or as an early leader in the church? I mean, James grew up in a house with God, and he just thought that was awesome, right? Like, my brother's perfect. Isn't that great? <laughs> How many of you would like to live in a house with a perfect sibling? Like an actual, literal, perfect sibling? <laughs> no, because you'd want to do what to that person 24 hours a day? Yeah, <laughs> yeah! I want to be the favorite for once. Yeah, I want to be the favorite for once. See, not all of you are as blessed as I was. I was an only child, so I was the only perfect one in the house, right? (laughs) There you go. John 7, not even his brothers were believing in him. So we have, and, and this kind of makes sense. I mean, let's be honest. Your brother walks up to you one day and goes, I'm God. You see, that's a good one. That's hysterical. Of course I don't believe in you. Why would I believe you? I grew up with you. I've been around for a while. No, I'm not buying this. Well, this gets different. Um, 1B. So we have James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can we... RSLA, will that next slide work? Is fighting with us? There we go. A bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you get from the brothers are not believing into him to I am a slave for my brother who is God? I mean, that's, that's kind of a big gulf to cross over, right? And he crosses this gulf pretty early on. Go back to Acts 1. It's a long passage, but it's worth reading. After he had said these things, he was, this is Jesus talking, he was lifted up while they were looking on and a cloud received him out of their sight. This is a, a favorite Bible verse, by the way, because unintentional comedy is always the best comedy. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going up, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? I love that because Jesus is going up. What would you be doing? You would be watching mouth agape, two angels show up. What are you staring up there for? <laughs> That's just funny to me, sorry. 
Yeah, exactly. This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. By the way, that would be in fulfillment of the promises of Daniel chapter 7 and what Revelation shows you. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath's day journey away. When they had entered the city, they went to the upper room where they were staying. That is, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. That's not Iscariot. These, all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. We've gone from brothers are not believing in in him to we're watching him go into heaven and we're now in and we are in completely. And James isn't just, you know, just some dude sitting at the church service. Um, One, did you enjoy the picture on your bulletin today? That's a um, that's a an artistic rendering of what's known as the it's the it's an artistic rendering of the martyrdom of James. And that's not the beheading of James, brother of John. That's the death of James, brother of Jesus. James will attend to uh, ascend to a leadership position in the Jerusalem church. Uh, historically, the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church count James as the first bishop of Jerusalem. He is the leader of that church. Uh, he would go and pray every day at the temple, and obviously as he's praying, he would then do what when it's time to leave? he just see everybody going into the temple, forsaking his brother, and go home and ignore that, right? No, he would evangelize and attempt to disciple and proclaim the work that Christ has done. The Pharisees and the Sadducees just love that, don't they? They just love you taking their perfectly formed little system and balling it up and throwing it out the window, don't they? They just think that's awesome. No, they frowned on that sort of behavior, so they got a crowd together one day and pushed him and threw him off the temple, threw him off the temple mount. Well, the fun part about the, 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 the story that goes with it is the fall doesn't kill him. He lands and breaks both of his legs and then immediately calls for an ambulance, right? No, he immediately begins proclaiming Christ some more to the point that the crowd picks up stones and stone him to death. See, it's not just that James started attending church. He was in. There was no changing his mind. How do you get from, yeah, right, my brother's God, whatever, to, I don't care if you throw me off a temple. I'm proclaiming Christ. I don't care if you want to kill me. I am proclaiming Christ. How do you get to there? Well, The resurrection is part of it. The work of the Holy Spirit is the biggest thing. The strengthening. This is why where you stand matters, Christian, because we stand in a completed work of God in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle. This is the history. There's a reason why Paul doesn't just point you to how you feel. How many times you heard me tell you not to do that? What have I told you about your feelings? How do I feel about your feelings? (laughs) 
I don't care. And I know that makes me sound sound evil and mean, but I don't. I don't want you to feel bad. I'm not going out of my way to make you feel bad. If you're hurt and upset, we want to fix that. But when it comes to your relationship to God, I don't care how you feel. I care what is true and good in the sight of God. So in other words, when somebody calls me, which this happens more than you think, I just don't feel like God loves me. I don't care. Has Christ died? Yes. Are you believing on him for your salvation? Yes. Are you trusting in the future kingdom that God will bring forth? Yes. Then God loves you. He has set his grace upon you and the Holy Spirit is carrying you forward. The reason why you're worried about how you feel about God today is because what's going on? You're having one of those uh, dragging days. You know, we talk about those days. Some days you walk well in the Holy Spirit. Some days you stumble and the Holy Spirit does what? Come on. Come on. Well, yeah, you're standing up now. Okay, good. Now we can walk some more. Good, good, good. (laughs) Some days you're just moving along. And like I said, some days you're having a dragging day. This is why people used to ask me, how do I know I haven't committed the unpardonable sin? Because you're worried. If If you weren't worried, your conscience would be seared, your soul would be cast aside, and you'd be destined for where you're going because you have decided to not follow Jesus as the song does not go. So. <laughs> I got to stop right now because my brain's trying to sing it and make the wrong words fit and I'm twitching over here. Let's not go down that road. But there are days that in Christ, they are a struggle. They are a war. And he who has begun a good work is faithful to complete it, Philippians 1.6. That's why his work matters. That's the convincing. That's the historical grounding. That's, notice Paul. What does he give you? Christ died according to the scriptures, that he's buried and raised, according to the scriptures. How do we know he's alive? Because he appeared to who? Everybody. Here's the list. Go ask questions. He points you back to a historical reality and understanding. Christian, this matters. This is why those little twistings that they do in the History Channel are so big, because they're trying to take a historical understanding and give you just a little bit of a on it. Just a little That's a technical term. And they're trying to take a good and right history And say, no, we don't like that. You know who our favorite people should be as Christians? Scientists and archaeologists. Because every time they go digging, you know what they prove? That it's right. (laughs) And every time they go digging in an old monastery or rooting around in an old library, they find more copies of the Bible that we didn't know about for the last eight, nine hundred years. You know what they all confirm? That it was right that we know what's going on, that we know what's there, that God has persevered and preserved his testimony and his witness, and all that he has shown is rooted in history. We have a context, we have a background, we have an understanding, and the more that we know about that, the more we will receive a confirmation of all that he has done. This is one of the ways that you get a James from not believing in his brother to, oh, you can throw me off a temple and I'm not worried about this because I know what I know that I know. John 5, Jesus showed you this. The testimony which I have is greater than the testimony of John. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do, testify about me that the Father has sent me. If you want extra homework, so read Esther, right? So we've added that to your list. So I'm going to add, read John 5. John 5 is your proof chapter. Jesus is answering objections. Well, how do we know who you are? Well, there's the testimony of John. 
There's the testimony of God. There's the testimony of Scripture. There's the testimony of the works that I do. In other words, everything about my life is pointing to what? Who I am and what I'm doing here. So read John 5. It will do you good. This is part of that proof. I mean, even if you're James and you're like, you know, now that I think about it, he was pretty perfect as a kid and he was kind of perfect as an adult and he was always about the work of God and he did teach and can't find anything that he did wrong, but ah, couldn't be, right? Couldn't be. I mean, I lived with him. Couldn't be. Well, when you saw him die and you saw him go into the tomb and then like a Tuesday, a week later, he's standing in the living room. How's that going to work for you? <laughs> yeah, you, you do the... Okay, throw away the leftovers because they are obviously no good. We're not going to eat those for lunch tomorrow. Okay, now I have questions. But what is the work of the resurrection? It's the ultimate proof. And it's not just the ultimate proof that he's alive. It's the proof of everything else. See, what's the penalty for sin? Death. He resurrects because it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Why does Christ get to get up out of the tomb? Sinless. It's not just a confirmation that he's alive. It's confirmation of everything that he has been teaching. And when I say everything that he has been teaching, ask yourself, always ask yourself this about your Bible. Was Jesus, did Jesus have to learn about Joshua being commanded to go take Jericho? Did Jesus have to learn about what happened at the Exodus? Did Jesus have to learn about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah? Did Jesus have to learn about the work and promises that God had made to Abraham, to Moses, to Joseph, to Jacob, to Isaac, to all the Israelites down through the years? Did Jesus have to learn about that at some point? No. He doesn't have to learn about it because he knows what he said. How does he know what he said? Because he was there when he said it. The same Christ who ascends the cross is the same Christ who commands the armies of Israel on how they're supposed to take the land. The same Christ who climbs out of the tomb is the same Christ who appears to Moses. It is the same Christ who leads the exodus. It is the same one who stands with Abraham overlooking the plain before the angels go into Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the same angel who appears, the same one who delivers. It is the same work throughout. He is the one who is and was and is to come. Christ is God. How do you know? perfect. He's sinless. How do you know? Because death has no claim. Death has no property upon him. He will not be held by its power because he has overcome its power because he is good and holy and righteous and just. That's what gets summed up in the work of the resurrection. That's what takes James from going, eh, okay, maybe, and yeah, he's not dead anymore, but why isn't he dead anymore. In other words, it's not just the what, it's the why that matters. James saw that. Now, this is where the second half of this comes in, and I mentioned it already once, but I'm going to make sure I mention it again. Israel, living in Goshen. There's darkness over the land. You can't see anywhere in Goshen, can you? There was light in Goshen. There's a plague of hail that's killing the livestock. All the livestock in Goshen are going to die, right? Except there's no hail in Goshen. Israel was excluded from most of those plagues. They were set aside and protected and preserved by God. There was weeping and mourning in all of Egypt as the angel of death came. 
except for the houses that trusted, that placed the blood upon their doorposts because they gave the life of a lamb in place of the life of their son. Israel saw that. Israel left Egypt rich because when they asked the Egyptians, hey, you got any money to want to give us? Will you leave? And Israel said, yes, if you give us something, we'll leave. Take everything and get out. That's all we want. And they left, loaded down with so much money they couldn't even count it. And they walked to the edge of the Red Sea and went, we're all going to die. And God parts the sea and they go through on dry land. And God crushes the armies of Pharaoh. And they walk out to the desert and say, what? There's no water here. We're going to die. And God gives them water from a rock and manna from heaven. And he appears upon the mountain. And Israel saw all of that. And they got into the land and went, we shall worship and serve the Lord alone. There shall be no idolatry. There shall be no backsliding. We shall worship and serve God and God alone. Right? That's what Israel did, right? No! They saw and they didn't believe. Why does James see and he does believe? Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put into death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why is Peter saying those words to the crowd? Wasn't Peter the dude who, like, a week ago was just like, Jesus, what's a Jesus? Never met the guy. And now I'm going to stand up in the midst of the temple and be like, <laughs> you killed him. God brought him back. What changes, what, why can Peter do that? What happened before that? Sound like a rushing wind and tongues like flames of fire appearing above. The coming of who? The Holy Spirit. Empowering strengthening, uplifting, accomplishing the work that God has set aside for them to do. What confirms and makes James different from Israel who failed in the wilderness? The work of the Holy Spirit. Christian, why do I joke about the Holy Spirit dragging you along? Because he will be faithful to accomplish all that he has promised. You persevere, not because you're awesome, but because God is awesome. You have strength, not because you are mighty, but because the spirit that God has placed inside of you is mighty. You can learn and proclaim and understand, not because we are smart, but because God has placed his wisdom by his spirit inside of his people. Therefore, we persevere, and we walk, and we understand, and we are secure in all that God is doing because he is the one is doing it. That's an understanding of who James is. If you try to go into the rest of this letter and do not realize that this is a man who is grounded in a radical transformation from unbeliever to believer and has committed the entirety of his life to that, then you will misunderstand and you will twist his words as has been done throughout much of history. Christian, this is an example to be upheld. This is one of the good examples. We get so few of these in the Bible. Most of the time, it's like, all right, do you see what Israel is doing right here? Don't do that. <laughs> it's like, do you see how they're walking astray? Don't follow that. When we have a good one, <laughs> celebrate, rejoice, and follow. Because this is what Christ is talking about, to take up your cross and follow after him. To die to self and follow after him. To forsake the things of the world and build up and store up treasure in heaven. 
That's who James is. That is what he is doing, and that is what he is going to encourage other believers to do. And by the way, Christian, what's changed? Welcome to why it's in your Bible. Because the message to the churches in 48 AD on how to walk faithfully in a world that hates them and is persecuting them. Because by the way, that persecution breaks out because they behead James, the brother of John. That's when you get Peter arrested and God springs him. Persecution's breaking out. We've killed Stephen a while back. We've killed James now. We're threatening to kill Peter. The church is being scattered and moved about. We're going to get to more of that in a second, but they're struggling. They're having a hard go. They need to be encouraged in, how do I walk faithfully in a world that hates me? You don't live there, do you? <laughs> Not in the least. In other words, the truths of Scripture are timeless because the work of God is timeless. So, let's continue. We've got James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Well, that just got difficult. <sighs> Who are these 12 tribes dispersed abroad? I'm going to give you a simple answer, and then I'm going to justify my answer. So if you want to argue with me, you have to argue with my justification. You ready? All faithful believers in Christ. That's who he's writing to. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, the list that you get at the end of Romans 2 and the end of Galatians 2. He's writing to them. There's a reason why I say that. The work of God has always been about the faithful followers of God. And I can prove it, I think. <laughs> Romans 11. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars and I alone am left. This is... um. Uh, 1 Kings 19, Elijah's freaking out because he thinks he's the only one left. And they are seeking my life. What is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. From the very beginning... God's people have always been a joinable people. I mentioned Romans 2. I'll read it. He is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. Remember, the Exodus helps us confirm this. So Exodus 12, you get the Passover lamb, the command. And we've talked about this. If you were a faithful Israelite, well, better not put that qualifier. If you were an Israelite in Exodus 12, and you're like, we need to kill a lamb and roast it and eat it and put blood on our doorposts, otherwise our kids are going to die, that's just stupid. I'm not doing that. What happened to your kid that night? He died. But I'm an Israelite. Did you listen to God? No. Then you didn't listen. See how that works? Now, likewise, what if you're an Egyptian living in Exodus 12, and you look across the street and be like, what are we doing? What's going on? You're killing a lamb. Why are you killing? Why are you putting the blood on your door? Because the angel of death is coming, and if we don't do this, God is going to kill our firstborn. Honey, get a lamb. Get a lamb. How do we cook it? Okay, we roast it. Okay, we can, we can do this. All right, we got this. How about this? We'll just bring a lamb and come over and stay at your house. Is that a good plan? Okay, good kid. Bring the lamb. Come on, let's go. What happened to your kid that night? But you're an Egyptian. They're under judgment, I thought. 
God's people have always been a joinable people. You see this in the previous plagues when God says there's going to be hail and the livestock are going to be killed, all that's left out in the field. Pharaoh's like, no, he won't. No, I don't believe you. Some of Pharaoh's officials did what? Bring the livestock in. This is not going to end well. This is not going to be pretty. They started listening. They started fearing God. That's why the Israelites are commanded immediately. Passover. Who celebrates the Passover? Israelites. Circumcised members of the community. What happens if someone's a sojourner or a stranger among us and they want to, they want to celebrate? The answer is they can't, unless they do what? Unless they join the people. The immediate command. Why do you think that was? Because as Israel is leaving Egypt in the Exodus, there's some Egyptians who are going with them. They're commanded, how do we bring the foreigners around us into the people of God? And the answer is by obedience and faithfulness to the commands of God. Why? Because it demonstrates circumcision was an outward sign of an inward reality. That's why the prophets pointed back to it. Circumcise your hearts. This is what the festivals were, the sacrifices. The lamb doesn't spare my child. God does. Why? Because on faith that he is faithful to his promises, we have done what he has commanded. Therefore, we have trusted that God will redeem, that God will save, that God will rescue. We have identified with his people because we are constantly being reminded that we are his people because of the work that he has done. Not the work that we have done. It's the work that he has done. So when James is writing, he's writing to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. This has nothing to do with an ethnic Israel. There hasn't been 12 tribes in Israel in any identifiable fashion when James writes this book in over half a millennia. The 10 northern tribes were just about lost when the Assyrians crushed Samaria in 722. Um, The ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria, captured Samaria and carried Israel away into exile and settled them in Halah and Habor on the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. The Assyrians come in, deport you out, deport other people in and try to get you to intermarry and intermingle so as to destroy your identity. This is why the Samaritans were hated in Jesus' day. They had brought back not just an ethnic corruption into Israel, but with an ethnic corruption came what? A religious and worshiping corruption. They brought the pagan idols, the pagan gods, and brought them to Samaria as part of worship. Some of the ten northern tribes stayed in worship. You see this in 2 Chronicles 30. They established a decree, because by 2 Chronicles 30, there is no Israel anymore. A decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan. That's the far northernmost portion of Israel, which means the assumption of the Judean kingdom was that there was going to be someone of the kingdom of Israel left to worship. And if they're going to be there and we're going to do this right, we should do what? Include them in our worship. The history becomes a nightmare. You can actually um, see this in Ezra 2 of how hard this is. When the Babylonians come in in 586 and destroy the temple, a lot of record keeping is lost and a lot of the understanding of who's of which tribe is gone. The only tribe they could, I'll ask it this way, guess which tribe they could still mostly keep track of after 586? Levites they struggled with. Judah. Why was it important to keep up with the the tribe of Judah? Forget Jerusalem. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, or the ruling staff from between his feet, until the one to whom it belongs shall come. It's Genesis 49. It's the promise of the ruler from the line of Judah. This is why your genealogies in Matthew and Luke are so important. They connect Christ to the tribe of Judah, showing that he is the rightful heir of the throne. So Esther, 
John 5, Ezra 2. All right, I'm adding to your homework for the week. So Ezra 2. You can actually see this when um, Zerubbabel, great name if you need uh, new names for kindergarten kids. You know, you got somebody in your family having a baby. There are not many Zerubbabels running around. You can use that male or female. I don't think anybody's going to know the difference. <laughs> um, when Zerubbabel is returning, uh, Ezra is recording this. They have priests that they're going to serve in the new temple they're going to rebuild. Well, there's a problem. They get there, and these guys, we know that we're priests because I'm a priest, because my dad was a priest, because my grandfather was a priest. I mean, when they return, it's 539. It's not been even 100 years since there were actual Levites working in the temple and serving. So if you're an adult going back for the work of the temple in the 530s, your grandfather probably did work in the temple. You know you're a priest. They get back and they check the records and they can't prove it. And they discharge them from service and send them home. Ezra 2 records this. So there were priests that couldn't. We know that they're priests, but they can't prove it. Get out. Because they've already lost some of their records. That was 538, 537. By 48 AD, who's of the tribe of Benjamin? Maybe we know. Who's of the tribe of Issachar? Who's of the tribe of Dan? I have no earthly idea. And you know who else doesn't know? James doesn't know. The 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad. God's people, wherever you may be, whoever you may be, as you seek to walk and live faithfully, this is an encouragement to you. This has been the longing of humanity from the very beginning. It is seen in the history of Israel, and it is seen still in the history of the church. See, as you have this dispersion, you have a longing. I mean, let's be honest. How many of you would like to be picked up? Let's just say, you know, an army comes in, conquers the United States, picks you up, and then, like, moves you to Guatemala. Now, some of you may be like, oh, the weather is so much nicer. I don't have to shovel snow. And some of you are going to be going, what are you going to be telling your grandkids about? You will, believe it or not, one day be sitting there telling your grandkids and great-grandkids about how wonderful it was to live in Illinois. Don't laugh at me. <laughs> I've joked and told you before, Illinois is the first place I've ever lived where even people who live here don't like it. <laughs> it's just, we're like the red-headed stepchild of the Midwest. It's kind of fun. No, I'm serious. We have all of the things in Illinois that summarize Midwestern life, and we're not known for any of them. If I mean, because as someone who's not from Illinois originally, if you told me, well, corn, you know what we all think of? Iowa. Well, there's cold weather and snow. Yeah, in Minnesota. Well, there's dairy and cattle. Sure, in Wisconsin. <laughs> well, there's great fishing and outdoor activities that we can do. Sure, up in the Dakotas and in Minnesota. Illinois is known for none of those things. Well, it's a nice rural, you know, country type state. Yeah, in Indiana. We have everything in Illinois that all the other Midwestern states have, and we're famous for none of them. We're the redheaded stepchild of the Midwest. <laughs> that doesn't have anything to do with James, but you just need... Yeah, and nobody wants to be famous for Chicago. Nobody wants to actually be famous. Because you know what everybody outside of Illinois knows about Chicago? That they shoot you there. That's what, that's what Chicago's known for. Nobody wants to be known for Chicago. Be like, oh, the place... The mindset of people not from Illinois is like, well, if you go to Chicago, do you have to wear like body armor and like one of those helmets they give to the SWAT team? That's how Chicago is known. It's the bulls, the bears, and shootings. There you go. <laughs> Nobody cares about the Cubs. <laughs> Sorry. 
It's okay, he's not listening. Now, a longing. I joke that you will long for Illinois because you'll remember it as the place that you were, a place that your parents were, a place that your family is from. This has been Israel from the beginning. By the way, Christian, this has been humanity from the beginning. Adam and Eve had that garden. You, you, let's be honest. Every kid and grandkid and great-grandkid for as long as Adam lived, which was a really long time, knew about that garden. And you know what they all thought? That it was cool. You mean you just went out and, and, and tended the fruit and it grew and you tended the trees and they produced food? And it, Do you see what we have to do to eat around here and how much work it is? And the animals weren't trying to eat you? Like the mountain lions and the bears didn't try to take your lambs and eat them and eat you at the same time? That was awesome. Why did you people mess this up? All of humanity has been a trying to get back to that. With the ten tribes gone, you have a longing for the people of God to get back to that people of God. Welcome to the church. Welcome to the church. Acts 7, I told you, brings persecution, the martyrdom of Stephen, where they stone him to death. It doesn't get any easier from there. Because here was the problem. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Well, when you get to Acts 7, where are all the apostles? Where are they? They're in Jerusalem. Are they in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth? No, they're there. So what does God do? He sends persecution. What happens now? I gotta leave. (laughs) I can't stay here. And as they went in Samaria and into Judea, what happens again? More persecution breaks out and they scatter even farther. Because all those people from all of those places that came for Pentecost... When they saw the work of God and the coming of the Holy Spirit and they were redeemed of God and changed, they didn't leave. They stayed. That's why throughout Paul's missionary journeys, he's constantly taking up an offering for the poor of Jerusalem. Why does Jerusalem have so many poor? Well, because all of these foreign-born Jews that came back for the festivals and have been redeemed didn't want to go home. This is where it happened. We're not leaving, but here's the thing. Jerusalem's not built to give you houses and jobs and take care of all these people. So what's Paul doing? Collecting money to take care of all these people who are just stuck. They're just staying. God disperses them. I told you, Acts 12, they behead James. You get a second dispersion. They are now being sent out different than when they came in. And beyond that, the numbers that are being added to the church day by day are from not just the residents of Jerusalem, but all the people traveling, all the work. You have the Ethiopian eunuch who comes and goes back. The message is spreading and growing. Cornelius and the Gentiles come into the faith in Acts 10. The the kingdom is growing beyond just Israel, beyond just Jerusalem. And the world is hostile And the world is now strange because everything you thought you understood about the world is now different. It now doesn't line up. And I don't know how I live in a sinful world when I recognize just how broken it is. And I don't know how I live in a world that is changed because I am different. And I don't know how I live in a world that's trying to kill me because I have been redeemed. And James is saying, time out. We got this. This is the letter. Why? Because the God who has done all of these things is the God who has redeemed us, is the God who is living inside of us, is the God who will not forsake us and has not forgotten the good ends that he has promised. Therefore, there is a way that we can walk, that we can work. 
what was promised. Jeremiah 31. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He's promised that. He's delivered it in Christ. Romans 8. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He, and he who searches the hearts knows, the, knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Always understand what that is. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Those whom he predestined, he's called. Those whom he's called, he's justified. And these whom he's justified, he also glorified. In other words, the work that he has begun, he has promised it will end in a kingdom that is righteous and good, where God will be known, his people will be known, and there will be no more sin. And Paul's looking at that and going, and he's doing it. And he's going to do it. Because we can see the patience and the mercy and the perseverance of God in all of his workings in the Old Testament. Therefore, we know that if the same God will persevere with them, he shall also persevere with us. And that is why James can write what I will call the first book of the New Testament. Because 48 AD would put it before everything else. This is the initial encouragement to a church that is struggling because it is being persecuted. It is growing. It is learning. It is discipling. It is being discipled and it is also being hated as Jesus warned them it would be. How do we live in this world? How do we stand firm? How do we make sure the darkness outside doesn't become the darkness inside? That's what James is instructing. Because we can say, look, I'm going to believe, I'm going to believe, and I'm going to believe, but at some point, I need to be able to do what? What does that look like? How do I live out my belief? In other words, what's the motivation behind my action? Because remember, it's not what you do, it's why you do it. How do I check my heart, check my motivation, so that my work as I go forward is grounded and rooted in the right place? And James is a good person to start because, well, shut up or we're throwing you off the side of the temple. Jesus is gone! Because <laughs> he won't shut up and he won't stop. Why? Because he's been changed and he's been redeemed. And he has been shown that there is a better way. This is the power that is demonstrated in this work. This is the power of God at work. A doubting, distrusting brother, transformed by the work of the Holy Spirit, grounded in a salvation brought by God, confirmed by God, and, a, and living a life empowered by God. Does that sound like something you would like, Christian? A life that has been transformed, grounded in his truth, and empowered by his spirit. Because that's the life you lead in Christ. And if it doesn't feel like it in most days, the problem is not between you and God. The problem is between you and you. You have put the wrong thing in the wrong place. James is here to tell you, let's put the right thing in the right place and make sure that we're guided by the spirit. Surrendered to Christ, serving God, trusting that his kingdom will come because it is what he has promised. And we know that he will accomplish all of these things. And let's put flesh on the walk that we lead. That's what he's teaching. 
Now, do you understand why I said we have to understand who he is in order to understand what he's written? This will be our kickoff for James, is applying spirit-led writing to spirit-led living, because that's what James cares about, which is a whole lot about what God's people should care about, because it is the work that he is doing for his children in real time. Let's pray.